Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. Let me invite you to turn in a Bible to the book of Jonah. Book of Jonah this morning. And we're going to be reading and then studying together from chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles that have been provided for you, it should be found on page 451. Yeah. So here the biblical author writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. It all, I mean, it never fails, right? Right on cue. Providence. We're going to be talking about that this morning. All right. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord now, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So, let's pray together as we come to our text. 
Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We do believe that it is living and active, and we ask now that it would live and act in us. May you be glorified in it. May you exalt your Son. May every person in this room this morning who does not know you hear the saving truth of the gospel in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We also ask for ourselves, who have received that grace, that we would become an exceedingly gracious people to all peoples, and that the gospel might advance through us to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Little books, big messages, that's the series. A week ago, uh, it was Obadiah and his message. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. Remember that? And today we take up Jonah with its big message, which seems to fall right in line with Obadiah's. How are we to relate to our enemies? How does God relate to our enemies? Is there only judgment? Remember from a week ago again in Obadiah, the day of the Lord. Is there only judgment for those who hate us, for spiritual enemies, both of us and of the Lord? Or is there actually a way of escape? for the ungodly. The big message of this little book, much more famous than Obadiah, is this greatest news, that salvation does actually exist, and that it belongs to the Lord. So salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the big message. And I trust we first understand that to mean that we cannot save ourselves. You and I, cannot save ourselves or others. We're going to see that in our text today. But with it, also, certain implications, certain convictions, certain commitments and calls to repentance, really, for you and I, for the saved. That we know salvation belongs to the Lord seems to imply a readiness to go wherever and to whomever He calls with His saving message. It's that we keep on, not just put on, but that we keep on the shoes, as Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 6, these shoes of gospel readiness. But we learn that in Jonah, not by a positive example, but by a negative example. Jonah's issue isn't that he doesn't know the sovereign of salvation, he does. Jonah's issue is not uh, that he does not love the message of grace, he does. His issue is that he hates that God, the sovereign of salvation, would be gracious to his enemies. That's the issue. Salvation for Israel, grace to me, no problem. But the mere possibility of Assyrians, or just to maybe feel the sting of that a little bit more, you or me, since we also are not Israeli, I don't think any of us are anyway, we're Gentiles, the mere possibility that any of us would be saved by the grace of God. Man, Jonah could not be more livid with God. He could not be more despairing of life. He could not be more unwilling to serve. What about you and me? Are we ready, like Obadiah, to serve souls at our king's bidding? Or, like Jonah, are our hearts set against the full import of saving grace? Let's come to our text, as I said, in verses 1 to 3, and the Lord's runaway prophet. As we know Jonah from 2 Kings chapter 14, you go there later this afternoon, you'll read a little bit about Jonah. As we know him from that passage, we have a true prophet, he really is, a true prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II, in which Israel was expanding her borders by reclaiming the parts of the promised land, listen now, that they had lost to enemy incursions. So, Israel was boosting national pride, reclaiming those lands, boosting national pride, despite persisting in spiritual pride. Still very wicked. She was regaining her land, but not her soul. She was picking up ground, but she was not putting down her sins. So they were off base. The nation was off base about what constituted 
true progress to God. And in one respect, the leading voice behind that was Jonah's. One wonders if that didn't serve to give both him and the nation sort of this false sense of God's smile upon them. As if this, this kind of national prosperity and not that, that kind of spiritual prosperity, holiness, is what it was really all about. What blessing was really all about. But there's little doubt it got into Jonah's heart. This national pride. By Him, God has spoken victory. God has spoken expansion for Israel. The church is growing, we might say. Everything is as it could be, should be, would be. And then we get verse 1. And God says, let's see just how much true progress there really has been. How much of the Spirit of Christ is guiding my prophet. How much of my son's heart is formed within the heart of Jonah? And so he says in our verse 1, Now then, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Jeroboam. No. Arise, go to Israel. No. Arise, Go to Jeroboam in Israel for their prosperity. No. He says, arise, Jonah, and go to Nineveh, this great city, this capital of that beastly and ungodly enemy, Assyria, and call out against it, for their evil has come up to me. And to that sending word of our king, Jonah says, no. Another prophet, Amos chapter 3, verse 8, says this. He says, the Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? The Apostle Paul, you go to the New Testament, he says, as we have all believed, who can but speak this good news? And Jonah, basically, to both of those says, me, I'm the one. He raises his hand in protest and says, I'm him. Okay. So the only time in the whole Bible that a prophet refuses to speak the word of God is right here. The looming question is, why won't he? And the answer is multifaceted. I've already suggested that Jonah is a nationalistic loyalist. The only nation that he's really for is Israel. I don't think it's unfair to say that his heart has succumbed to ethnocentristic sin and that this has hardened his heart toward the vicious enemies of his people. He's committed to a tribe over against the global advance of the truth of God. And so disobedience, disobedience to God seems less odious, more preferential to the truth advancing to Assyria. So Jonah may be this great prophet, he may may have spoken for God on many occasions, but his heart, as we see in Christ later on, is at a great distance from God's heart. Remember what Jesus says to his people, to his disciples, to you and me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Strong language. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. So Jonah needs to understand mercy and the God of mercy better. What about you? We just asked Indrajit, do you promise to follow Jesus Not in most things, but in everything. As his missionary, his servant, not just to your family, your friends, your co-workers, so on, but to your enemies. And grace upon grace, he stood in front of us and said, yes. And if you're a member here, you also have said, 
yes to that. And you know what? In this setting, Jonah might have too. But what we say up here in front of this friendly crowd, when it's expected that we would say yes, maybe a far cry from practicing the substance of it when perhaps unexpectedly the Lord comes to you and calls on you, arise and go to your abusive father with the gospel. Arise and go to your bullying boss with the gospel. Arise and go to that fuming atheist with the gospel. Arise and go to that serially hurtful acquaintance with the gospel. Arise and go to the people who have done you personally so much harm. Take the gospel to them. You may know the name Rachel Denhollander. Never met her, but she went to the church that Jenny and I called home when we were in seminary. Uh, she was one of many gymnasts, uh, I believe it was at Michigan State, who suffered sexual abuse at the hands of Larry Nasser. But at his trial, though she spoke very clearly and passionately on the judgment of God, and perhaps every fiber of her being and soul wanted to leave it right there. The judgment of God is for you. She closed by sharing Jesus with him and calling him to Jesus. She did what Jonah could not find it in himself to do. Is it in you to do that? Set aside the clear and obvious enemy. When did you last share the truth of sin and grace with any sinner, with any unbeliever who's right now ignorant of the truth, absent of the truth? If that is few and far between, is it really in us to then target a person we know to hate us, who has greatly harmed us, to be the recipients of the gospel of God? Now, as you think on that, here's the thing about Jonah's commission. On the surface, it sounds like precisely the sermon that Jonah would be elated to preach to Nineveh. Doesn't it? It's like God set it up on a tee for him. I know Jonah really hates the Ninevites. Go, Jonah, and tell that evil city, God's coming and hell is coming with me. You'd think that Jonah would be like, yes! It's exactly what I want to go preach, so long as you'll do it. But verse 3, he pulls a Joseph. Except instead of fleeing away from sin, he tries to flee away from the Lord. Again, why? We don't find the answer really until chapter 4, verse 2. But it's a powerful one. Jonah knows God. Jonah knows God. And knowing God, he knows that God is inclined to save sinners. And that any word of God, even a word of judgment, carries with it inherently the power and maybe even, even the proclivity not to devastate Nineveh, but to deliver them. Not to apply justice, but to apply grace and mercy, not to sever them off from the face of the earth, but to save those sinners. His enemies. Knowing God, Jonah knows he can preach sinners in the hands of an angry God, and by it, God will bear his heart for sinners. It's incredible. Jonah knows he can go and preach judgment, wrath, and hell, and by it, God will bring the worst of the wicked Ninevites to heaven. Now, there are several lessons there that we can return to in chapter 3. 
But the textual point for today is what Jonah well knows. It's this. Oh, to believe this, really. No word of God, no word of God is ever spoken. But the God of all grace and power attends it. That's why, you'll notice in those first few verses, Jonah does everything in his sin and power not to run away from the Word of God. But more specifically, to run away from what? The Lord Himself. See that? He wants nothing to do with giving even a single ray of God to Assyria. And he's not even necessarily thinking, if I run and hide, the light will go with me. And they'll just live in darkness the rest of their existence. Fact is, this was actually the heyday of the prophets, Jonah's day. And so he may just be thinking, Lord, I despise that you would do it, but if you're going to do it, send Isaiah. Have you read Isaiah? Gospel, Gentiles, take it. He loves them. I'm just telling you, I'm not going to do it. Charles Spurgeon once said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. But Jonah's like, I'm good. In fact, I'm going to go in the exact opposite direction. I'm paying my way onto a ship at Port Joppa to get to Tarshish. I'm getting as far away from that heart as I possibly can. Want nothing to do with it. And I'll just ask this. If that is Jonah's heart, and God knows that that is Jonah's heart, why does God come not to Isaiah, but to Jonah? With this ministry... Because God cares less about giving you the ministry you want than giving you the ministry you need to make you more like Jesus. To cultivate your heart in grace. It's not just that Nineveh needs the ministry of Jonah. Jonah needs this ministry to Nineveh. It is a steady affliction of ours to run away from the things God knows to be good for us. I've seen it and done it a time or 2,000. And I'm betting you have too. So this book, right here at the beginning, is about the Lord's runaway prophet. And it's a warning. He's a warning to us. That is not the way for you to go as a disciple of Jesus. Running away from God and from His call upon our lives to take the gospel to the nations. Okay, we've got to move. Let's come to verses 4 to 16. We've seen the Lord's runaway prophet now the Lord's revelatory providence. If that's a new word for you, it just refers to the detailed activity of God's purposeful sovereignty in the world, whereby He can be discerned. He can be seen. So Jonah's not going to speak. By providence, God will, in order that Jonah eventually might. As we go through it then, we're to bear in mind God's pursuit of His stowaways. What a beautiful lesson, right? God's pursuit of His stowaways. Thank God there is not a place that you and I can run where God is not. No matter how hard we may try to drown out His voice, 
No matter how hard we try to get away from Him, to hide ourselves amongst the world, to bury ourselves for sin and for shame and for sorrow, I haven't done what the Lord called me to do and I'm just broken about it. Right there, the Lord is. Sometimes by storm to rescue us again. And so Jonah's on this ship at sea. In verse 4, the Lord stirs up a storm that from its onset threatens the integrity of the ship. We need to hear that the prophet's disobedience brings death to the pagan's door. And apparently, there's nothing like a raging storm at sea to make a man religious. Some of you know I hate the ocean. It terrifies me. One too many like Jaws movies. Uh, what's the, the, the perfect storm with George Clooney? Terrifying. That's the worst film ever made. Okay? So, I know. I watched it the other day. I can't help it. It's so terrifying. I'm just focused on it. Fearful, suddenly for their lives, the mariners begin awfully to pray. Why is that awful, Brian? Isn't one man's prayer as good as another man's prayer? No, it's not. Some pray to their gods, which is to pray to nothing. It's to pray to the wind that's controlled by the one true and living God. But they don't know Him. They don't know the Lord. And so the situation is this. The Lord has commanded a storm that's left seafaring men at such a loss that they begin to pray to nothing. The precipice of eternity on which we always stand, by the way, is just now immediately visible to them And seeing it, their God consciousness awakes so that they're grasping for any rock upon which to cling, but they don't know one. They don't know a rock. You know who does? The guy who in the midst of all this is sleeping soundly in the hull of the ship. I'm not sure we have a more disturbing or convicting picture in all the Bible, minus maybe the cross. While the godless are despairing of life, forfeiting all their freight to spare their lives, searching frantically and futilely for any rescue from the judgment of God, the one who knows God is fast asleep. What could be more rebuking than verse 6? And this pagan captain shouting at God's prophet, What do you mean by this, you sleeper? What are you doing? Arise, call out to your God. Maybe He can reveal a way not to perish. Dear ones, just because we're not on this ship doesn't mean we're not always in this situation. Moment by moment, All around us, people live on the precipice of eternal judgment without a prayer in the world. Lost souls are perishing on every side. They don't know it, but they would in a moment give all they've got to survive that storm. And do they have to come and awaken us? who know that they've got nothing that can save them and need only what God has been pleased to give in Jesus? Can our love really be that comatose? Can our obedience to God really be that drowsy? Can our evangelism really be that out of touch from the desperation of the spiritual situation all around us. We need to open our eyes. Jonah, you need to wake up. 
God help us not to be found undisturbed safely inside the ark of Christ while those who are outside the ark are perishing in the storm. God help us to be awake to the need of souls. What is your sleep number? Jenny and I have one of those weird beds. What is your sleep number? As in, how many have you neglected? Just because you were not awake to all the things that should compel you to care for souls. That's not to heap any more guilt on us than a pagan captain crying out to the prophet of God, what do you mean, you sleeper? What do you mean by this sleeping? Can you not see how very desperate the situation is? It's the world rebuking the church, as one put it. If we saw the situation as it really is, there would be not one soul that we would not seek out immediately to tell them the good news of Christ. We'd go after every one of them and we would be eager in earnest to speak up. You see, Jonah's now awake. But does he offer them a word at all? What word does he speak? Nothing. At least not eagerly or voluntarily. He's awake to the situation now. But in perhaps this is more akin to our difficulty personally, he keeps silent. He just does not open his mouth about either the cause or the solution. And so what happens is the lost are left to try to navigate the situation for themselves by their own counsels. Oh, the irony then, as they cast lots under the belief that this danger is owing to someone's misfortune on the ship and that blind fate will help them see the someone. But we know what they don't, don't we? That the lot may be cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.33, that's called providence. And in God's providence, the lot, verse 7, fell on Jonah. So here's our prophet trying as he might to avoid testifying to the ungodly, and God simply will not let him alone about it. If Jonah won't take God's word to pagans, God will bring pagans to Jonah. As we are true, He won't let His people who know Him hide too long among the world without one way or another drawing us out of that crowd so that we stand out like a lighthouse in their night for the glory of God. Praise God. Jonah sees, therefore, that the will of God with him is unavoidable. It's inescapable. So verse 8, we have, as it were, the perishing world begging the prophet for answers to their plight. Again, what a picture. Why has this come upon us? What do you do? And what is your story? Jonah finally then speaks up, forced as he is, to shed some light. Now you see in verse 10, they already know he's fleeing from the Lord, that much he's told them. And apparently, at the time, they thought very little about it. No big deal. We trade out gods all the time. We're used to deconstruction stories. Sailor Bob over there deconstructed just the other day, didn't you, Bob? Who is the Lord anyway? Come on aboard while they thumb through his down payment. But now that the storm has come, things are quite a bit different. The tide has turned. Maybe this guy's God is, you know, God, indeed. And that's what Jonah confesses, verse 9. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, Yahweh, 
I fear the Lord. He's the God of heaven. He's the creator of all who, just so you know, made the sea and the dry land. And in that, we're to hear Jonah saying to a polytheistic assembly that his God is the only God there really is. And that as it relates to their situation, he is the one who made the sea. He's also the one who made the land. He's the one behind the storm, but perhaps then there's a hint that he's also the only one who can calm the storm and return them safely to port and to solid ground. He's the judge, but perhaps he's also the savior. He's our creator, but perhaps also he is the redeemer of unrighteous and rebel souls. But what do the sailors hear in all of that? They hear that the creator of the sea is upset with a runaway prophet who's used their ship to run away. They hear that Jonah has knowingly now endangered their lives and possibly beyond that. And so what they want to know now is whether he can give them any hope of deliverance from the judgment of the God of heaven. And as we're tossed in that particular direction, we need to feel again what's at stake in our being inconsiderate of souls. Lost souls do not know their maker. They have no living concept of the living Lord. They may peck around for a God that they think that they can control for a moment, but they do not know the sovereign King of heaven. They don't know that their lives belong to Him. They don't know that their sin is eternally grave and that none can help them turn back His justice except the very same God. What must we do to be saved? We don't know. Can anything be done? When you and I slumber among them in silence like Jonah, we knowingly endanger their lives and we know most definitely beyond their lives. We're not doing nothing when we do nothing. But in our doing nothing, we're doing something that Paul calls woeful. Woe to me, he says, if I know all of this, if I know Christ, if I know the gospel, if I know the situation, woe to me if I do not run into that and preach the gospel. Woe to me if I do nothing for the lost. Woe to me. Are you doing something, anything with the gospel for the lost? Summer's coming up. For some, it slows down. Not for all. But maybe it's a good time. Maybe it's a good time to learn some good habit of being considerate, more considerate of all the souls that are going to be around you. What can you do in the next few months while you've got maybe a little bit more time on your hands? What can you do for the advance of the gospel and the salvation of the lost? We've seen the storm and the only sleeper, the lot and the only Lord, now the sea and the only solution. In verse 11, they seem to know something must be done with Jonah in order for us to be spared. And I don't want to be too hard on Jonah. But I think the rest of the book gives us some license to be pretty hard on Jonah. You see, Jonah did bring God to light here, but that light stays rather dim until his way of salvation is actually revealed. And Jonah doesn't exactly offer that up. 
In fact, everything that he offers in this chapter 1, and I think throughout the rest of the book, comes at the mariner's initiative. Comes at God's like, get there. And I'm not even sure the solution he offers here is much more really than a self-centered pity party that has a special benefit for those sailors. Why is Jonah's solution not, let me first try repenting to the God of heaven? Why is it not, let us next try praying to the God of heaven? Why is it, verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea? I don't know exactly. Maybe he knows, as he says, same verse, that the storm will not stop until he's paid for his sins and the wages of sin is death. Or, maybe even still, Jonah does not want to repent. Maybe he doesn't want to engage with God for mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Maybe Jonah is so hardened to grace, so hardened to grace, that he's bypassed it even for himself. And so in the same vein, one scholar suggested this, quote, Jonah has resigned himself to being, listen, punished by the God he could not outrun. Resigned to being punished. And maybe... That's where you are too. Your spiritual failures have compounded to the point you think, there's no turning back from me. There's no need to repent. There's no need for me to seek God's face because all you expect to find there is the absence of grace and forgiveness. No mercy. From the Lord. So again, Jonah knows God, but he does not faithfully apply what he knows either to himself or to others. Dear one, listen, if you are despairing spiritually, let me dare you. Let me dare you to believe that the God of all grace is ready to be gracious to you. If Christ has died for you, you need to kill your sins. But you needn't kill yourself over your sins. You need to turn, you need to trust, and you need to grow in grace. That said, Waste not, want not. That's how God rolls. And so we come to the Christ-depicting solution that Jonah offers. Again, it's hurl me into this sea of raging justice and it will become a sea of perfect peace for you. And you see verse 13, that these mariners, they give a great display of what we call God's common grace. His common grace. They do all in their power to keep from throwing Jonah to his death. Isn't that wonderful? These guys don't know the Lord. <laughs> they are, they, they're, they're pagans. They have no real moral compass at all, they think. But at Jonah's suggestion, they're like, let's do everything we can to not have to do that, to save his life. They're more righteous than Jonah. Talk about rebukes. They do all in their power to keep from throwing Jonah to his death, but the tempest of God was too strong for the extremity of their strength. Try as they might, the storm just grows more and more tempestuous so that they could not get back in themselves to solid ground, and that is every sinner's condition in the world. 
We cannot save ourselves. But what's impossible with us is possible with God so long as we take the means that He's provided. And so, they come to terms with it, don't they? Jonah has to die or else we're all going to die. So verse 14, they take it, and I want you to see this. Earlier, it's, it's, they started crying out to their gods. They go to Jonah. The captain goes to Jonah. He's like, cry out to your God. And then they get here at the end, and what is it now? They take it to the Lord in prayer. See that? Let us not perish for this man's life. Please, Lord, hold us guiltless. We're only doing as you've been pleased to do, to reveal, to provide for us in order to be saved. I imagine that's quite a different prayer than the ones they prayed at first. Again, one to this true God according to the revelation of Himself. And the question now is very, very pragmatic. It's about as pragmatic as you'll ever see me get. Will it work? Does the God of heaven hear and answer prayer? Is He the Savior of sinners? Not just of Israel. Is He the Savior of their worst enemies? Will He accept the sacrifice that He has ordained and revealed to them? Only one way to find out. Verse 15. They pick Jonah up, they hurl him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Talk about a revelation of God. It certainly made its mark on the mariners, verse 16. It says, seeing this being delivered at sea like this, like they've never been delivered before, by the death of the disobedient one. They feared the Lord now exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord with vows. Really, they became what looked like living sacrifices. And this is the only right response to receiving so undeservedly this saving result, this deliverance at sea. What Jonah should have been, but refused to be in this case, we pray the mariners truly became. They're just grateful servants. Grateful servants of the living God, our good and gracious King. Are we eager to do His bidding in the world? More specifically, are we ready to go wherever and to whomever He calls with the saving message of the cross of Christ. Beloved and friends, listen, in all this, I hope, if you've discerned anything, you've discerned Him. The foreshadowing of Him. You see, 700 years later, or thereabouts, God would send not just a servant, but His Son. And not just to a subset of enemies, but to a global history of us. And Jesus would never balk at His task. <laughs> no matter the cost, He was going to pay for our sins. He would live among us, fully awake, if ever anyone was, to our situation. As constant light into our lostness. Pick me up. Pick me up. And nail me to a cross. It's the only hope you've got. It's that God so loved the world, Jonah, that He gave His only Son, obedient as He was, to die for our sins, to be condemned in our place, that whoever believes in Him should not, what? Perish. 
but have eternal life. That's the message and the call to you this morning, friend. And we pray that God right now will just fill that with grace and power to save you right now. Soon as you call on Him, soon as you call out to Him, soon as you trust God's means of grace to you in Jesus Christ, I promise you peace with God will arrive and never go away. And with that, dear ones, we've gotten into Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Do we know what that means, really? For others and for us. One thing's for sure, it's not that we'd be at peace with ourselves if it's our resolve to communicate so little, so haltingly, of the peace of Christ we know to those who don't. The story's not over, and God is still gracious, but the lesson so far is just this. Don't be like Jonah. Souls are lost. Sinners are perishing. Jesus can save. Lay your life before this King and seek them out. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, please. Hard to know what to pray. We thank you for your word. And we ask that you would do your mighty working in our hearts. And that you would form Christ and his passions, his grace, his love, his boldness, his consideration for souls. Form that within us. And grant us the grace that saves those that we talk to and seek out. For your glory we ask it as always. In Jesus' name.